live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City. This is the Jeff Wagner Show. Here is the deal. Let me kind of go through what we know, and then I want to discuss this with you. It's just mind-boggling, and it might not technically be illegal, but if it's not, it should be. The reality is no car insurance, no problem. Nuts to that. Let's get them off the road. Impound the cars. Make the streets safer. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. What are those people talking about? You got a deal. A deal is a deal. Stop whining about it. Live up to its obligations. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the Friday edition of the show. Lot of ground to cover. We certainly live in interesting times. U.S. Senator Ron Johnson has been attracting a lot of national attention for a number of reasons, but in particular over the last couple weeks, uh, especially this week as a result of a couple of opinion pieces that he has published in various places, um, analyzing how we're approaching the coronavirus pandemic and suggesting maybe... Maybe we need to be a little bit smarter about figuring out how we're going to get the country back on track. These comments and these articles have turned out to be extremely controversial. I think that would be fair to say. And we are joined right now by the senior senator from the state of Wisconsin, Ron Johnson. Senator Johnson, good afternoon. Well, Jeff, how are you doing? I, I am well. Hopefully you are staying healthy and social distancing and all that sort of stuff. Yes, and I'm recommending to everybody social distance, keep your hands clean, don't touch your face. I mean, all those things make an awful lot of sense, as well as making sure that businesses where people congregate, where you can't maintain that social distance, those businesses also have to remain closed. But the federal government does have to step in and provide financial support for their workers and for the businesses themselves so they can reopen. So, I mean, to me, that's just table stakes. Uh, seems like people in the press leap to a completely different conclusion of what I'm saying, because what I'm also saying is we have to keep as much of our economy open as possible. Those, if you, you know, it's indisputable. We need to keep hospitals open. We need to keep grocery stores open. Well, start thinking about all the businesses that supply and make sure that hospitals can remain open and that grocery stores can have food on the shelves. You'll start very quickly comprehending how incredibly integrated our economy is and how so much, first of all, can be kept safely open. You know, my old manufacturing plant, people who work there, they're 100 feet away from each other. So, again, keep your hands clean, don't touch your face, social distance, and we can keep an awful lot of our economy open. And, Jeff, we have to so we can supply the necessities of life and so we can keep all these other businesses that are vital as well open. Uh, Senator, do, do you agree with the concept of of only allowing essential businesses to remain open, or, or do we need to be perhaps a little bit broader in, in asking the question, not so much whether it's an essential business, but whether having the business stay open promotes the, the spread of coronavirus? Yeah, what I've been talking about is we should list, because it will be a much smaller list, non-essential businesses that represent a risk of further spread of coronavirus. So, again, that's any, any, any business, any organization where people congregate and, and are in close proximity to each other, where you can't maintain that social distance. Those businesses, those organizations need to remain closed until this passes. But, again, that's a much smaller list. I think the presumption is, is that most businesses are essential and people can maintain 
social distancing. You know, Jeff, I mean, going to any grocery store right now, people are definitely taking this seriously. You're seeing a lot more people wearing masks. They're keeping they're keeping away from each other. You have tape sometimes on, you know, in front of the counters to keep people at least six feet apart. We are taking this seriously, and we should be taking this seriously. But we also should be taking very seriously the integration of our economy and how we just can't wholesale shut it down. Now, Senator, um, in in that regard, some people are suggesting by allowing more businesses to to either reopen more quickly or, or reopen immediately, what we'd be doing is putting the general population at risk. And the, the story you always hear is, well, if it, if it leads to the death of one or two more people, we, we've got to keep everything shut down. Do you, do you buy into that? Well, this is where I get in a lot of trouble. So let, let me first say every <laughs> premature death is a tragedy. But the fact of the matter is over the last nine years, we have 337,000 Americans who have died because of seasonal flu. Two years ago, we had a pretty bad flu season. 61,000 people died of normal seasonal flu. If we had been keeping track of that and putting it up on our TV sets right now, because flu season really goes April to April, uh, you would have had 61,000 people dead of seasonal flu versus the five or 6,000 dead of, of COVID-19. Again, they're all tragedies. Okay, any premature death is a tragedy. But an awful lot of people, yeah, I just probably have to stop talking here uh, because I'll just get myself in more trouble. But I mean, the, the fact of the matter is we, we don't want to underreact, but there are huge costs of overreacting, and we need to put these things in perspective. Now, Senator, to, to that point, I know one of the things that, that you've – a point you've tried to make that a, a number of, of the critics kind of just sort of gloss over is that, that there's, a, there's a toll to – keeping businesses closed. There's a toll to cratering their economy. There is a toll on people for losing their jobs. And, and, and that has a very real impact as well. Do we need to be focusing on, on that as well as the need to stop people from getting COVID-19? Well, that's what I was trying to point out in some of my columns. You know, we had, we, we lost 48,000 people last year to suicide. Most of 70,000 people took drug overdose. Now, again, that's a measure of human despair in an incredibly strong economy. I was just listening to Lawrence Lindsay on CNBC earlier, and he's also, from an economic standpoint, talking about the enormous toll of just an in, a 10% increase in unemployment that they've measured, you know, the, the human despair and, and additional suicides, that type of thing. So you can't dismiss the human toll of economic devastation as well. As well as, you know, if we shut down too much of this economy, the, the more we shut down, the more difficult it's going to be to turn it back on and for biz- these businesses to start up. There is a lot of, of wealth and capital being destroyed right now, and you need wealth and capital to keep the economy moving. So, again, I am highly concerned about the long-term impact of what we're doing right now. Again, I, I don't want to underreact. But I, I am highly concerned about overreacting when it comes to keeping so much of our economy that can be kept open safely. Let me underscore that. That can be kept open safely. Social distancing, personal hygiene, we can keep our economy open. Senator, one of the things that, that I, I know, at least I've been noticing, is we, we get, on, it seems like an almost daily basis, we get various projections of the, the number of people who are going to catch this and the number of people who are going to die from it. 
And and those numbers a lot of times just seem to get thrown out without any real explanation of, of the methodology. Matter of fact, there's even a piece in the Washington Post today that says that the numbers that President Trump came out with, 100 to 240,000 two days ago, nobody's really sure where, where those numbers, where they really come from. Given the real economic impact, do you have concerns about at least some of the, the methodology behind some of these studies that are coming out that, again, have these dire predictions? Uh, yes, but what else do we have to operate on? Uh, you know, we're, gonna, we're, we're starting to see the economic measurements right now. 3.3 million people on the unemployment rolls last week was a 6.6 here just announced. Uh, that's pretty easy to calculate, as well as the, the current death toll and the number of cases. And by the way, the, the reason America has surpassed everybody is we are doing now by far more testing than anybody else in the world. So this is going to be a, a disease d- defined by statistics. Uh, and re- policymakers only have these models to go on. So I'm not being critical of any governor and, and, or the president making very tough decisions with imperfect information. But we need to look at all the information, and, and we need to put things in perspective. But I think, you know, when, when all's said and done, there's so much that we have to analyze. You know, why, why didn't we have this, this, uh, all these uh, PPEs, you know, the personal protection equipment, the drugs? Why didn't we have that in the nation's stockpile? Why have we allowed uh, all this manufacturing to go overseas of just vital you know, drugs and equipment that we need. But part of that post-mortem analysis on this thing has got to be, how was this all driven by the modeling and were the models correct? Did we, did we overreact? Did we do a lot of economic destruction when maybe we shouldn't have done that? I mean, I can't answer the question that. Nobody can right now. And so right now everybody, everybody is erring on the side of caution. That's understandable. But we do have to understand the costs of our reacting the way we are. Senator, do you think that there's going to be a time in the relatively near future where Congress looks at at, at, an, at an additional stimulus plan to try to keep the economy to, to try to get the economy back on track? I know we just passed the, the big one, but the money's not in the hands of individuals yet. Do you think we're going to be back at the table pretty soon? Well, from my standpoint, if we're doing a phase four, Phase four will be looking back at phase three and correcting a lot of the mistakes made, a lot of the negative unintended consequences caused by a massive bill that was very, very quickly, and it had to be put together and passed quickly. But we should really take a look at, you know, analytical eye on that and and fix phase three from my standpoint. Now, if you want to just take a look at numbers, that was $2.2 trillion. It started out about a half a trillion, then went to three quarters, and then $1.2 trillion, then you know, there was a lot of legislative price gouging that occurred, but 2.2 trillion is 10 percent of our economy. So this thing was really meant to get us through, you know, eight to 12 weeks when when we have maybe 10, 15 percent of our economy shut down. That's a massive amount of money. That's 10 percent of our economy. That's like you shut the whole thing down. So I think there's more than enough money on the table right now. Uh, phase four really ought to be looking at, okay, are we spending that properly? Uh, are there negative unintended consequences to some of the policy decisions we made in, in, in producing this massive $2.2 trillion bill? That's what I'd prefer seeing in phase four rather than another $2 trillion stimulus. Do you think certain industries 
have been perhaps irreparably damaged as a result of what's going on in just the last month or so. I, I keep reading stuff, for example, about the airline industry, about how just people, even if they're allowed to fly nowadays, they're, they're not flying. I mean, are, are there going to be some industries that are going to have a, a markedly different look two months from now, six months from now, a year from now? No, that's the real danger, Jeff, is you need, you need capital. You need net worth to start a business and keep it flowing. You shut down a business, and that capital, is just, it just disappears. It gets spent almost immediately just trying to keep the thing operating. At some point in time, you run out of capital, which means you don't have the capital to start the business back up again. You know, again, I, I know I'm not the most uplifting character, but that is my concern about shutting down so much of our economy is that capital dissipates, it goes away, um, and then what, is government just supposed to start putting capital into businesses again? And that ends up being a communist system, and it doesn't work. You need individual entrepreneurs with their own capital that they put at risk, that have their dream. And so what we are seeing is we are seeing entrepreneurs being wiped out, their life savings that just kept building up in that business getting wiped out, which is one of the reasons we have this small business, these, these uh, PPP loans, to try and keep those businesses afloat so that people aren't dissipating their own capital, their own hard-earned sweat equity they put in their business so they can come out on the other side of this thing. But we've got to be on the other side of this thing sooner rather than later. Senator, what do you think China's role in all this was? Were, were we in the United States slow perhaps to respond to this, to appreciate the significance of this? Where Do you think we were getting bad data from China as to how bad the problem was and maybe we should have closed down international travel sooner? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, other than China, this is nobody's fault. But no, I think China has a great deal of culpability. They completely lied to themselves and to the world. And we could have reacted better. And I don't think this thing would have spread as much had China been forthright and honest and actually allowed world experts to come in there and really assess what was pulling off here. I mean, just the fact that they kept these wet markets open, which is, I think, the, probably the number one theory of how this all started. You know, that's where SARS came from. Uh, these wet markets should be shut down. They should not be allowed. So, no, I think China bears a great deal of responsibility. And then, just, of course, their, their basic mercantilism. I mean, we have not been smart in terms of allowing things like API, you know, the precursors to all these drugs. So much of our drugs are being manufactured overseas, so much of our medical equipment. Some of these just vital things we've allowed to be manufactured uh, overseas. When there's, there's really, I mean, it's not exactly like drugs are a high labor content product. So the easy solution there is if FDA approves a drug or medical device to be used in the U.S., it's pretty easy to say, fine, it has to be made here. That'd be an easy fix. But there, again, there's so many things we have to look at once we get past this. Right now, I'm primarily concentrating on a, a smart response to this so we can keep as much of our economy safely open as possible. We definitely want to reduce the spread. There's no doubt about it. We, we don't want to overwhelm our our healthcare systems, but we have to be looking beyond just today and the damage being done right now to these more widespread shutdowns. Now, Senator, let me t- just switch gears because I know you're very busy. But before we go, there's an election, primary election, presidential primary election, and nonpartisan general election scheduled for next Tuesday. They are scheduled to go as planned. Do you think that that's a good idea? Listen, I'll let state officials make those calls, and I know the courts are involved in this. You know, what I'm trying to do is just make sure that Republican conservative voters uh, either go in, vote early, uh, get an absentee ballot, or go out on, on April 7th, maintain social distances, 
keep your hands clean, don't touch your face, uh, and, and, and make sure that you go out and register your vote. It's important. That's, that's the decision that's been made. Uh, we need to deal with that, but we can do, deal with it safely, and that's why I'm encouraging Republicans to get out there. The, the, the Supreme Court race is, is crucial. Uh, we, we need to reelect Justice Dan Kelly, so get out there and vote in, in some way, shape, or form. Uh, U.S. Senator Ron Johnson, thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. Um, stay well. You too. Take care. Bye. All right, that was Senator Johnson. Um, we're going to take a quick break. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Well, as you can expect, Senator Johnson's positions have been, I guess, very controversial because there's some people out there who believe that if, if, if it saves one life, you know, we, we have to do everything we possibly can. And Senator Johnson's just simply been, I think, trying to make the point that you, you have to have, you, there has to be some sort of balancing out there. And he's gotten criticized for comparing the, the number of deaths that occur annually for the flu and things like that. And, and understanding that this isn't the flu. But I think his point, and, and it's a point that I think deserves some, some fair consideration, is, is that, look, we all have to maintain social distancing. We have to be smart about this. And he's written a couple pieces on that but but as we start to try to figure out how we're going to come out of this we have to figure out how we're going to unwind things and the, the point that the senator has been making and i don't mean to put words in his mouth are we, we've already said essential businesses that they, they stay open all right so then the question becomes what about the, the quote-unquote non-essential businesses do we just keep them all closed or do we say hey like let let's Let's try to figure out which non-essential businesses are out there that, that pose a realistic risk of spreading COVID-19. And, and unfortunately, th- that might mean that the hospitality industry has to stay closed longer because, okay, restaurants and the op- way the, the typical restaurant operates, for, forget the, the, the takeout food for a second, is that, you know, people come in and you sit in a dining room and you sit in relatively, you know, close quarters to each other. Okay, so, so maybe that's a, an arguably, quote-unquote, non-essential business that you, you can't, you, you, you can't reopen right away. But what about non, quote unquote, non-essential businesses that don't pose that risk? And I always use the example, what, what about the, the dog groomer who works out of, of her home and maybe interacts with five or six people a day and can easily do that with the context of social distancing? You know, do we, do we need to say to that dog groomer, okay, you can, you can now open up. We're going to allow you to go back and start living your life. The, those are, and I think those are fair questions to ask without being, again, irresponsible and always recognizing that we have to, we have to do the social distancing. We have to wash our hands. We have to have the hygiene. Matter of fact, there's a piece that the senator published in Real Clear Politics. Um, I'm going to send out a, a link to it because it quotes a doctor from, from New York who says, look, he, he said this is, he's, he's in the front line of dealing with a lot of this stuff. You know, and, and he believes, as a general rule for people, that if you practice the social distancing, if you wash your hands, if you don't touch your face, if you don't do things like that, your chances of catching coronavirus are, are minimal. So I'll, I'll share that with you. I understand that that's a little bit controversial, but at the same time, we've we got to figure out how we're going to come out of this because we can't leave the country shut down for six months or a year. And coronavirus, as I keep saying, isn't going to go away. I mean, it's not going to go away till we get a vaccine for it, and that vaccine is 12 months away to 18 months away. So we have to figure out how we're going to live to an extent with coronavirus. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.
This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let me be really clear here. We have an election coming up next Tuesday. It is an important election. There's the presidential primary. There is the election for the state Supreme Court that Senator Johnson was just alluding to. We'll be picking circuit court judges. We'll be picking mayors. We'll be picking county executives. There'll be referendums. Yesterday, a federal judge in Madison issued a ruling which I think to be charitable, it would be charitable to describe the ruling as irresponsible. In my opinion, it is extra legal. In other words, you have a federal judge who, in my opinion, is kind of going rogue and making things up as he goes along, regardless of what the law says. And it is a ruling that, in my opinion, I think is going to cause more problem than it solves and is going to result in election manipulation, if not outright fraud, on a scale that we have never envisioned in the state of Wisconsin. That is why I am hoping against hope that the United States Court of Appeals on an emergency basis steps in either either today or over the weekend and, and stops this, at least a portion of this order. Now, now here's the background of this, and let's uh, we're going to talk about this, but kind of let me give you, walk you through my understanding and my interpretation of what's going on here. You have the, the Democrat Party of Wisconsin highly invested in trying to elect a liberal to the state Supreme Court bench. That is Jill Karofsky, who's a, a Dane County Circuit Judge since 2017. She's running against the conservative, the appointee of former Governor Walker, Dan Kelly. Um, the, the thinking had been all along that Karofsky was going to win big because you would have Essentially, on, on April 7th, there was going to be a contested Democratic primary for president. Now, this has been the thinking all along. You'd have four or five people that are going to be running, and there's going to be this huge turnout, and you're going to have all this money spent and all this attention. And the presumption was all these people that come out and vote in the Democratic primary, they in turn are going to vote for the liberal candidate for the Supreme Court. That had been the conventional wisdom. Well, that that's kind of fallen apart because what's happened is the, the All the steam has gone out of the the Democratic primary. Joe Biden is the presumptive nominee. Bernie Sanders, while he's still in the race, Bernie Sanders isn't going anywhere. The campaign is just dead in the water. So as far as this this presidential primary driving turnout, that's off the table now. In addition, what you had is this hope that, you know, there was, like, let, let's look at what has to happen for the liberals to win in Wisconsin. You have to have enormous voter turnout in Milwaukee and, and in Dane County. And that's why in Milwaukee and Dane County, you had the, the clerk of courts open for early voting at least a week before early voting, you know, opened up anywhere else. So I think, you know, people thought this is going to be this inherent advantage. Well, what they're starting to see now is the absentee ballots that are being requested from the suburbs appear to kind of like overwhelm any of that early voting. And I think there's a lot of people on the left that are concerned that all these assumptions they made aren't going to work out. So that's why you've had all these efforts to try to stall the election or to try to change some of the terms of the election. And they found a friendly federal judge in in Madison who, like I say, is kind of making it up as as he goes along. Now, here's what he did yesterday. He, He said, look, I don't think I have the authority under the law to delay the election. 
and I, I think he's clearly right. Now, reasonable people can disagree about whether or not the legislature should have moved the election back to June, but the decision was made not to do it. So the federal judge says, I don't think I have the power to, to order this put off, even though I don't like it being conducted there. Oh, okay, fine. So what the judge says is, I'm going to extend the time that people can have to request absentee ballots, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to extend it through sometime today. All right, because normally it would have been earlier this week. All right, that, that's all well and good. Now, under state law, absentee ballots have to be returned to the clerk of court's office in the voting area by 8 o'clock on election night. They have to be received so they can be counted that night. Okay? What the judge has done. Now, I thought that the judge, recognizing that because he extended the time for people to get absentee ballots, I thought the judge was going to say, perhaps, look, I, I'm going to order that because I've extended the time for absentee ballots, I'm going to order that any ballot postmarked by you know, 8 o'clock or by midnight or whatever on Election Day, April 7th, as long as it's in the mail or delivered, because you can hand-deliver these, but as long as it's in the mail by Election Day, Postmarked by midnight on April 7th, I'm going to order it to be counted. Now, that, again, is, is contrary to state law. State law says that the ballot has to be received, I believe, by 8 o'clock at night. But I could see the judge saying, okay, I, I've got to give people more opportunity to cast their ballot, and I'm going to give them a chance to cast the ballot and then, and then mail it. Oh, okay, I got that. That's not what the judge did yesterday. In, in a move that clearly makes the mind reel backward, the, the judge said, all right, I am going to allow absentee ballots to be cast for a week after the election. So, okay, the, the election ends when the polls close, theoretically, on, on Tuesday, April 7th. The judge says, you, you, you can vote. You, you don't have to postmark it. You can vote on, on Wednesday. You can vote on Thursday. You can vote on Friday. You can vote on Saturday, as long as you get your ballots to the clerk by the next Monday, essentially extending the election deadline by, by a week. Now, where you get the authority in the law to do this, Lord only knows. But So now you're, you're not going to know the, the results. But people won't even have had to vote. Okay, so then it gets even weirder. Now, follow me on this. There's another state law which requires courts, clerk of courts, to report the results on election night. That, that's what the law says. All right, so let, let's... Let me just kind of walk you through what what this is going to mean. All right, so the, you have to report the results on election night. So let us say that you, all right, they, they report and they say Dan Kelly is ahead. Dan Kelly is leading Jill Karofsky by 100,000 votes or, or 50,000 votes. Pick a number. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Well, all right, all that means is then it starts a flurry of activity on a daily basis by, in this case, in my example, it would be the anti-Kelly folks, to go around and try to track down everybody who has requested an absentee ballot, and then they have a week to see, hey, if they can find people who might have required requested an absentee ballot and see if they can figure, identify them, and talk them into voting. So it's, I mean, this is Lyndon Johnson, who, you know, always used to say, and other people said it as well, that it's not who votes, it's who counts the votes. Well, this is that kind of thing. You have essentially, okay, gee, let's figure this out. Our candidate is behind by 50 votes. 
So what we've got to do is we've got to figure out who it is that might be sympathetic to us, that's requested an absentee ballot, and we've got to call them up and we've got to convince them to, to vote, even though the election was supposed to be over a few days ago. What a mess. But that's what the law says. I mean, the law says they're supposed to report it. So the modification today, recognizing that that would be just a complete and total mess, opening up the state to, I think, unprecedented degrees of voter manipulation, because you wouldn't just be getting robocalls now saying, hey, we, we want you to request an absentee ballot and vote. You'd now be getting robocalls saying, hey, we've noticed that you haven't voted, and we want to make sure you, you do, an attempt to influence the election after the election day. So apparently this morning, the judge, who I guess didn't realize the implications of his ruling yesterday, has now modified the ruling again, saying, regardless of what the state law says, I'm going to order the clerks not to report the results until you know all the absentee ballots come in. And again, like I say, we're we're just we're just winging it. Our number eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This is, in my opinion, no way to run an election. It's one thing to say, "All right, we're going to let you. We're going to count absentee ballots as long as they are either delivered or are postmarked." by the day of the election. But to say you, you can cast ballots six days after the election, I think is just flat out crazy. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And like I say, I hope the Seventh Circuit steps in and says no, that this is, there's no basis in the law to do this. I don't know if they're going to do it or not, but the idea of being able to cast votes six days after the end of an election well, gee, what could possibly go wrong with that? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line we discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And, and of course, all, all these problems get set in motion when you have a federal judge who, in my opinion, has gone rogue. And, and, you know, starts to tinker. I'm going to extend the deadline for this. I'm going to extend the deadline for that. I'm going to allow people to uh, request absentee ballots until the, 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 the Friday before the election. But then they're not going to be able to get them in time, and they're not going to be able to get them back. So now I have to issue an order which will allow people to vote up to six days after the end of the election. And I'm also then going to say, regardless of what the state law says, I'm going to order clerks not to report the results. I mean, you want to talk about a banana republic. That's where we're kind of getting to now. Let's start with Rick in Muskego. Rick, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. This is a circus. I mean, judges are supposed to be interpreting what laws are. They're not supposed to be making law up. And this is, I mean, if this is not a poster child for why Dan Kelly needs to be elected to the state Supreme Court, I don't know what is. Um, You know, it's, it's, if if they're going to extend absentee uh, ballots coming in until next Monday, why not just allow early voting or continue voting until next Monday? Why is one more important than the other? Well, well, right. You see, that makes a very good point. I mean, if that's the justification that it's too hard to do this, why, why would you cut off in-person voting? Because I mean, it's I, I just I guess I have to tell you, I am stunned at this decision because it strikes me as being so irresponsible and so extra legal. I, I thought he would say, if you can get the things postmarked by election day, you got to count them. Okay, I, I understood that. And I would get that. But this idea that you can just continue to keep voting and voting for an extra week, and you know that there's what's going to happen, you know very well, is there's going to be people 
at the election offices looking to see from the different sides, okay, who, who has voted, who hasn't, and if they figure that you're more likely to vote for Karofsky, you know people are going to be calling them up or banging on their doors saying, hey, we noticed that you haven't voted, we want you to do it. I mean, what a mess. And you're right, a circus. It's a circus. It is a circus, and, in the, and his order, his, his clarif- quote-unquote clarification that he did today is even worse because he didn't, from what, from what I understand, he's just telling clerks not to report the results. He's not saying them for them to tally them. Well, I know darn well there's going to be clerks around the right. state that are going to be leaking some of this information out to the, to, sure. you know. Yes. It, it, this whole thing is just, it, it, it's, it's a travesty. It, it really is a, a, a travesty of democracy. It's not how elections are supposed I- to be run. No, th- thanks for the call, Rick. I, I, I agree with you completely. And, and this is, and it's, it's been made worse by the meddling of this federal judge who, in my opinion, in this matter, ha- has gone completely and totally rogue on, on this issue. And a lot of the problems are problems that he has created by, by changing stuff that is prescribed by the, the state law. He, he wanted, I think, very badly to toss out some of the ID requirements, the photo ID requirements, but he, he had gotten slapped down on that by, by higher courts, you know, moving forward. But, but this idea that you, that you can keep voting, you know, after the day of the election. Here, that, that's okay. As long as you've requested a ballot, you've got an extra six days. And you make a great point, Rick. I mean, what, what is the point of that then? The same justification for not casting your ballot in time would be the same justification, I guess, you should have for going in the Friday after the, that Tuesday. Makes no sense. Scott in New Berlin. Scott, you're on WTMJ. Yes, hi, Jeff. You probably are know this, but the, what does a federal judge have anything to do with a state election? The heat shit has no authority to tell a state what to do. States run elections, not the feds. And on top of well, that, I, I, any vote cast after anything postmarked after April 7th should not be counted. I, I Thanks for the call. Right? I, I mean, first of all, amen. I know I, I, I agree with you. Now, that's not going to be the way it works unless and until the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit steps in and tries to put kind of an end to this madness. I And, and again, I... I, I, I think a reasonable compromise would have been to say, okay, I've extended the deadline to get the absentee ballots, so it, it, you know you have some responsibility as a voter. Anything that comes in you know, that is postmarked, that you mailed it before the polls were supposed to close on April 7th, I, we will count that, and that will delay the results a little bit. But this idea that you can just keep voting and voting and voting and we'll just open the polls for an extra six or seven days. Now, to your other point, what is the role of federal government? And I, I think that this is, again, it's this issue of judicial philosophy that occurs. I, I guess the argument that's being made is that the federal judge assumes jurisdiction on this because we don't want to see that people's constitutional right to vote is denied. But at the same time, if the state law says absentee ballots have to be received by 8 o'clock on the election night, and that is a clearly constitutional ruling, where does the federal court get the authority to do this? And I, I, you, you've got some activist judges who, who come in there and decide that they want to set themselves up as kings and this is how they want to work. And, and look, I don't know how this whole thing is going to play out. I can't predict whether the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit is going to get involved in this or not. If they do, they're going to have to do it, you know, right away because, you know, people do, you know, end up having to know. But just as a, as a practical matter, I, I think it's fair to say you can vote absentee if you want. And, and, and again, I don't even have a problem with extending the opportunity to request these ballots. But 
the understanding is if you wait till the Friday before, you know, you got to figure out how you're going to get that ballot back, and you've got to get it back by Election Day. The idea that you can just keep voting, we're going to leave open the polls. And, and, and you are absolutely right when you say what's going to happen is even though you tell the clerk of courts, even though you tell some of these people, you know, don't, don't give the results, you know that there's going to be people who are going to be monitoring, if not the results, they're going to be monitoring where the ballots came in from. Gee, we need to have, if Jill Karofsky is going to win, we need to have this much of a turnout out of these districts as opposed to, you know, the people who are, for example, for Dan Kelly, they're going to be saying, hey, we need to have this much of a turnout out of our districts. And you know what's going to happen is you're going to have all these people who should have voted on April 7th who are, you know, then going to be getting the phone calls. They're going to be getting the pressure. Hey, you know, we, you got a ballot, and, you know, we're not telling you necessarily how to vote, but we want you to send this back in. The election should end on April 7th. Seems to me pretty, pretty clear. That's not the way the law is set. That's not the way this is going to happen unless somebody steps in, unless a higher court steps in and stops that aspect of the ruling. Will they do it? I don't know. But like I say, if this if this, if it's not a mess, it'll do till a mess gets here. And maybe the answer was we should have put off the election. I, I understand, and reasonable people can make that argument, but, but we didn't. And given that we didn't, this is not, I think, a fair and a decent alternative. Back with more in just a couple minutes. This is Jeff Wagner. Don't go anywhere. Hey, when we come back, I don't mean to get your blood pressure too, up too much, and I understand we're living in a coronavirus world, but southeastern Wisconsin and some many unelected officials yesterday made what I think might be the worst decision, most irresponsible financial decision maybe ever made in the history of this region. And I understand that we've had a lot of irresponsible financial decisions that are made. We will discuss that. Stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Just, just one, I'm getting swamped with emails from people and texts saying, how can some federal judge in Madison do this? You know, how, how can you just allow people to keep voting and voting and voting after the election is over? And, and my answer is, I don't get it. I, I, I don't understand, but yet this is what's going to happen when you have a federal judge who, in my opinion, goes completely and totally rogue. Here's the other interesting thing. None of the, at least to my knowledge, I don't think any of the parties asked for this. Because I don't think anybody thought that, gee, you could get some federal judge that would allow people to just keep voting for, you know, day after day after day. They asked to have the election ordered postponed. Okay, well, he decided he didn't have the authority to do that. But I don't think anybody ever dreamed that you would just allow, again, votes day after day after day after state law says the polls are going to close. Again, I hope the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit gets involved and shuts this down because, to me, if if you're worried about fraud, if you're worried about coercion, if you're worried about skewed election results, just just wait till this order goes into effect and people have a week after the election to vote. All right. Now, I said before the break that, that something happened in the last day or so that is about as financially, fiscally irresponsible as anything I have ever seen in south in southeastern Wisconsin. And I guess there, there is one caveat to that, and, and that would be, of course, the pension scandal, you know, in, in the early 2000s. <clears throat> that, that, but, of course, that 
if you listen to the politicians that were involved in the Milwaukee County pension scandal, they will tell you they didn't know what they were doing. They, they just they, they got guppied in. They didn't understand that what they were doing is creating the system which would essentially you know bankrupt Milwaukee County for the better part of a couple decades. So even though they did it, they, they didn't know what they were doing. Now, I don't know if being incompetent and clueless, I don't know if, if that's better than just being actively irresponsible. And, and I'll let, I guess, other people decide. But what happened yesterday with regard to the expansion of the Wisconsin Center, the convention center, it, it's just mind-blowing to me. If you haven't followed this, by a vote to, of 12 to 4, the, the committee that, that runs the Wisconsin Center District voted to go ahead with a $420 million expansion of the convention center. Now, let's review the bidding here for a minute. The The convention center, the, the argument has been it, it was built too small to begin with and that we can't compete with other cities because of the size of it. So the argument was, we need to expand it. And if we expand the convention center, we'll suddenly get all this business. All right, well, I'm skeptical. I've always been skeptical of that, but that's the position that, that, you know, people have taken. All right. Now, the original deal was we can do this massive expansion of the convention center, and we can do it for $280 million. $280 all right? Well, the state then stepped up and said, look, we, we think it's important for, you know, Milwaukee to be able to attract conventions, et cetera. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll guarantee any bonding, any, any borrowing you do, we'll guarantee it to $300 million. All right, so the taxpayers of the area, you know, n- not, don't have to worry about that. You can go ahead. You can do the bill. You can do this. And the money is going to be repaid by increases in the, the various, the countywide hotel and restaurant and car rental taxes. Okay, so that, that's the idea. Well, quickly, what happened, in one of the great bait and switches that you see so often around here, suddenly the cost of the convention center ballooned from $250, $260 million to now $420 million. $420 million. This huge increase in cost. All right, well, I don't have to tell you that there's all sorts of things going on in the world right now, like with businesses shut down and with this whole question about when businesses are going to open up again. All right, so what they want to do is they want to go ahead, they want to, they want to release, they want to bond for $420 million. And the way these bonds are going to be repaid, again, it's going to be payments from um, increased taxes on hotels, restaurants, and car rentals. <clears throat> I'd like to talk to the 12 folks on, on this board who voted for this yesterday, and I guess I'd like to ask them a simple question. That question would be, do you listen to the news at all? I mean, look, look at is what, it, what is going on now. The whole travel industry is cratering. You know, airlines aren't flying. People aren't scheduling conventions. As a matter of fact, they're canceling conventions. 
restaurants are shuttered and those restaurants are going to continue to be look i don't know when we get out of this i don't know how many businesses are going to be left i I seriously don't but but it's going to take a long long time before these restaurants get up to speed hotels are either closing or if hotels are open they're open with 10 percent capacity right why in god's green earth would anybody number one think that it is a good idea to go off on this extravagant project and decide that we're going to, at this point in time, we're going to pay for this by imposing taxes on industries which have just been damn near crippled because of no fault of their own and all the stuff that's going on. Secondly, moving forward, what is the long-term, at least When I say long term, I don't know what the world's going to look like 5, 10, 15 years from now. But I can tell you over the next couple years, one of the results of this coronavirus, you're going to see fewer and fewer conventions. You're going to see fewer and fewer bigger conventions. I mean, I think you've got a lot of businesses, first of all, who are going to be at a point of time of saying, hey, we got to dig out from this. We've furloughed a whole bunch of employees. We've laid off employees. We've canceled 401k payments. We've cut this back. We had mandatory salary cuts. We're doing everything we can to, you know, stay afloat. Well, you think a lot of those businesses are going to be investing in attending conventions and things like that, sending people to these conventions? And then you've got people, you know, I was talking yesterday about the whole idea of, you know, how what's this going to do, for example, like to the concert business? I mean, are, are people, at least for the foreseeable future, going to be apprehensive about wanting to go into, I don't know, giant areas where they're with five or ten other thousand people? people. I mean, it would seem to me that at least in the near term, and by near term, I mean the next couple of years, you're, you're, the, the idea of banking on, gee, we're going to get bigger and broader conventions just just is, it's a fool's dream. Okay, so, you know, we're, we're going to, you're, you're talking about, you know, financial markets, a travel industry that's devastated by this, and, and yet they, they've decided that they're, they're going to try to move ahead with this project. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I swear, stuff like this just makes my head explode. Now, I, I've, I've always thought that this idea that you, you build it bigger and suddenly and all of a sudden you're going to get all this better stuff, I've always thought that's kind of a fool's errand because we haven't really seen that play out in, in the past. But but then you add in the fact that you've got an estimate for $280 million, Now it's $420 million. God knows what it's going to be once they finally start building. But you're, going, you're doing this. You're making this building, and you're talking about making this huge commitment for something that was dicey before coronavirus. Now, with coronavirus, you know it's going to be years before things have come back. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text um, line. Um, let's see. Uh, dot, 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 dot. Um, in 2008, in a previous economic disaster, they went ahead to refurbish City Hall under Tom Barrett. The calendar has changed. The character has not. Um, here's another one of these texts. Jeff, they're canceling conventions just for the next few months. Conventions will be back. Restaurants will be back. Um, oh, okay, gr- great. But just tell me how long. And then tell me why, 
if we want to get the conventions back, if we want to get the restaurants back, if we want to get the hotels back, um, if we want to get visitors back, now is the time that we're going to start increasing the taxes on the people that would patronize it? Give me a break. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I just I am stunned by the fiscal irresponsibility of this decision yesterday. The prudent thing to do would have been to say, you know what, we're putting this on hold until we we see what things look like three months from now, six months from now, whatever, because, you know, the world might look completely different in in six months, and then we might have an idea as to when conventions are going to come back, not this blind thing about, hey, let's spend... Let's spend $420 million and hope for the best. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And if the taxes aren't enough to pay for this, well, then the taxpayer, if the taxes aren't enough to pay for the, the cost, then the taxpayers are going to be on the hook. What do you want to bet that's exactly what happens? We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. 855-616-1620. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Jeff, Pfizer Forum is proof that when you build it bigger, better, it will come. You are an impediment to progress in this region. If by progress you mean shafting the taxpayers for fiscal folly that is going to come back and haunt us for years and years, you know, guilty. Guilty. Wouldn't you have liked to have had people maybe listen before we did this Milwaukee County pension scandal two decades ago? Oh, no, you're an impediment to progress. I mean, here, here is the reality. Look, th- these, these projections, and, and I think you can make a strong argument that the projections that they made before what's going on now were rosy at best. But they did this study, and of course the study was done by people who you know, had a vested interest in seeing the expansion. The, the numbers um, were, was that, okay, if you expand the, the convention center, you'd add 112,000 square feet, and that uh, direct spending of visitors would go to 154 million from 105 million by 2023. Uh, okay, which is now, what, three years from now, and that full-time jobs at hotels, restaurants, and other businesses tied to that spending would increase from 800 to 1,200 in 2023. All right, now, I, those numbers strike me as being pie-in-the-sky, unrealistic, because they're assuming that even if you had more space, that you'd suddenly be, be able to get all these bigger conventions, and I, I question that. All right, but, but maybe maybe that would have been true, last year when they did the study. I mean, my question now would be, given what is going on in the world and given what the long-term effect is, now, if you believe that in the next you know, two years that you're going to have everybody back to business as usual, you're going to have all the spending on conventions, all the people who've been you know, laid off, and all these companies are going to be back on great financial footing, th- that's fine. But, but it... I think you know you're you're kidding yourself. And before you make a commitment to a four hundred and twenty million dollar expansion of something that could turn into a white elephant, wouldn't you at least want to wait a few months and then see, all right, let's test these assumptions that might have been true. I say might have been true, but it might have been true in November or December at the height of a bull market, and then see what they're going to look like. What does 2023 look like now? And are those numbers still valid? And my guess is, if you're doing a legitimate survey, the answer is no. I'm looking at a a study right now. The story today that is depressing the stock market, employers in March 
cost seven hundred cut seven hundred and one thousand jobs in March. Seven hundred and one thousand. And and April, we're told, is going to be the worst of the coronavirus stuff. So I think these numbers are going to be even greater. I think there is a realistic chance. Now, look, I hope I'm wrong. I do. I do. I do. I hope I'm wrong. But, you know, at, at one point in time, we were three months ago, we were at like three percent unemployment, which is pretty much full employment for all practical purposes. You know, some people are saying we could be looking at 15, 20, 25 percent unemployment. If that's the reality of America in the next several months, all right, do do you really think that all of a sudden we're going to have this huge rebound and you're going to have all this people just flocking to Milwaukee and attending these big conventions when they never came here before? I just, the responsible and prudent thing to have done would have been to put this on pause, to say, look, we're, we're going to wait we're going to take a look at this. Let's see where we are six months from now. Maybe let's even, if we really care about the information, let's hire and let's, let's authorize another study. Let's say, what are the assumptions we made when we did these studies in 2018 and 2019? And, and do they still hold up in, in 2020 after everything that's going on? And if you decide they do, okay, fine. Then you can go ahead intelligently. But if you decide no, if you get results that you maybe don't like, maybe that means you should rethink your position instead of committing taxpayers to tens of millions of dollars that might never be recovered. And instead of jacking up taxes on industries that have just been absolutely crippled over the course of the last month, and if they come back, And I say if they come back, you know, they're certainly going to be struggling for a while. Is this, you know, do you think you want to to build these things on the backs of those industries that have been hit really hard? But maybe that's just too simple. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Um, we're, we're awaiting a, a press availability or a press conference from Governor Evers. I mean, t- typically he's done these at, at 1.30, and what they've typically done is they've been an update on you know, COVID-19 and the coronavirus, including numbers and things like that. And so we, we've carried a portion of it. Our intention is to carry that as well, you know, when, when it starts. In addition, there, there's some more breaking news. You know, we were talking in the last hour about the election. And in my opinion, the absolutely rogue decision made by a federal judge yesterday in Madison, which would allow absentee ballots to be cast for a week following the election, just I, just completely, I think, un- unprecedented. And I was expressing my hope that the federal courts step in and, and put a hold on that. We don't know. But in any event, the latest development is that Governor Evers wants to call the lawmakers into a special session uh, tomorrow. And what he wants to do is he wants to either get the legislature to push back the election for like another month or so or until May, or alternatively, he wants to 
use mail ballots. In other words, that is preventing people from going to the polls in person. And I, I think the, or, the the thing would be, okay, take all registered voters, presumably those who haven't voted and haven't requested an absentee ballot, send mail ba- send ballots to them in the mail, and then ask them to respond in the mail. Something that's it's just it's a non-starter. It's it has no practical ability. They they don't even have enough ballots printed. I don't know how long it would take them to do that. Um, it's just it's a complete and total non-starter. Now the Republicans in the legislature haven't responded yet, but I, I just do not see that happening. And again, I, I think reasonable people can can disagree about whether or not the election should have been canceled, but. Um, this particular decision makes very, very little sense. And the governor, like I say, this is sort of grasping at straws. I think that this one is going to be a non-starter. Gru, okay, we're going to go. Um, here's the press conference. We're going to join it. We'll, we'll see what the governor has to say. Briefing our Governor Tony Evers, DHS Secretary-designee Andrea Palm, and available to answer questions are Dr. Ryan Westergaard, the Chief Medical Officer for the DHS Bureau of Communicable Disease, and Ryan Nilsistoon, Chief Legal Counsel for the Governor's Office. We will begin the briefing with remarks from Governor Tony Evers. Thank you for joining us today. I want to begin by thanking all of you for doing your part to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Your efforts to maintain social distancing, the sacrifices you have made when it's come to your jobs, your schooling, and your day-to-day activities are what we need to flatten the curve to protect the people of our state. It's also what we need to do to support our health care workers who are making heroic efforts to test, treat, and prevent this virus. At the same time, we've also had to be patient with each other and ourselves because we're all doing this for the very first time. And there's bound to be some glitches along the way. We must remember that at the end of the day, we're all doing our best and we're all trying to do the right thing. And one of those glitches along the way has been the upcoming election. Folks, there's no real good answer to this. It's not an easy situation. And frankly, no one wishes this was as was easy as much as I do. This is, as I've said, a rapidly evolving situation. I've said that I would listen to the advice of the public health experts. I said I would let science be our guide, and we are. But as we face these challenges over the past few weeks, I have also asked the people of our state to do their part to help. Well, here's the bottom line, folks. If, as elected officials, we're going to expect the people of our state to make sacrifices to keep all of us safe, then, by golly, we better be willing to do our part, too. So today, I announced that I'm calling the legislature into special session to do its part, just as all of us are to help keep our neighbors, our families, and our communities safe. Folks, I can't do, I can't do, excuse me, I can't do this or or move this election or change it on my own. My hands are tied. And that's why I spoke to the legislative leaders about this weeks ago. I even publicly called on them to act. They have made it clear they are unwilling to change. I was hopeful that the courts would help intervene in this issue. All the while, I've moved ahead making plans for the election. I've called up the National Guard to help meet staffing needs at polls across our state. I've worked to provide PPE, cleaning supplies, hand sanitizer, and pens for every polling uh, location. The bottom line is that I can't ignore that 
Municipal leaders from Green Bay to Milwaukee to Waukesha significantly condensed the number of polling locations available, creating a dangerous situation where voters, staff, and volunteers will not be able to avoid large groups or practice social distancing when they go out to vote. This is a significant concern and a very unnecessary public health risk. I hope that the legislature will convene and take up a special session tomorrow for an up or down vote to send a ballot to every registered voter by May 19th who hasn't already requested one and to extend the time for those ballots to be received to May 26th. Time for the legislature to do its part, just like all of us are, to help keep each other safe. And in addition to announcing the special session today, I am also announcing another important initiative. All of this, I know, has caused considerable stress on everyone. For some, it has increased our anxiety and has led to depression. That is why today I'm announcing Resilient Wisconsin. And while Resilient Wisconsin will be an ongoing initiative, we cannot think of a more important time to launch this website and resources designed to connect and build resiliency for Wisconsin's effect, Wisconsinites affected by trauma, toxic stress, and other mental and behavioral challenges. My first teaching job was teaching science in Baraboo. Did you know that resilience is actually a science term? It comes from physics, and it refers to the ability of a material to absorb and then release energy to return to its original shape. But for us today, as we face the ongoing challenges of COVID-19 in Wisconsin, resilience is how we will band together and grow as a state in the face of unprecedented times. Resilience is our ability to recover from adversity. It's our ability to adjust to change, and it's our ability to deal with difficulties. Resilience does not mean you don't experience stress. It means you're using tools to be kind to and take good care of yourself and stay connected with folks around you, all to help to reduce your stress. And bring, excuse me, and being resilient doesn't have to mean being alone. Supportive relationships keep us grounded. And while physical distancing might make maintaining that connection harder, it also makes it even more important. Even in this time of physical distancing, we all need to remember the importance of the human connection. And to our first responders and healthcare professionals who we know are experiencing the stress on the front lines of the pandemic, let me say this. We are here for you and we see you. As we work to flatten the curve, we see your dedication. We know the work you're putting in to keep us safe. And we know surely it must be exhausting. And you know what, folks? It's okay for heroes to ask for help too. That's what resilience is all about. All of us learning it's okay to lean on and depend on each other during the worst of times. I've used the word resilience a lot today. That's because that is what Wisconsin is and is who and who we are. It is true that COVID-19 is a new challenge and that it has brought significant change to our lives. But what, I'm all, what I also know about this state is having spending most of my life here, Wisconsin is resilient. You are resilient. We are more resilient together and resilience is the way forward. So thank you so much and I'll now turn it over to Secretary-Designee Andrea Powell. Thank you, Governor Evers. 
Good afternoon, and thank you all again for joining us here today. I know I usually start with the numbers, and those numbers are important, and I'll circle back to them, but I want to take a moment to talk about some different numbers. I want to talk about the thousands of first responders and medical professionals and clinic support staff on the front lines of COVID-19. I want to talk about the thousands of teachers doing their best to continue educating and supporting our children through this difficult time. Thanks as well to the grocery clerks and gas station attendants and warehouse workers and delivery drivers. A big debt of gratitude belongs to the millions of Wisconsin residents protecting each other by following Safer at Home because we know that flattening the curve is how we save lives. And I want to acknowledge those of you worried about loved ones who are sick with COVID-19 and to honor those who are grieving loved ones who have passed away. This is all difficult work and I want to acknowledge and thank you for that work. Staying safer at home is so important, but we know that it isn't easy. We want to make sure you have the tools to care for yourself, to stay connected and to reduce stress when possible. And our website, resilient.wisconsin.gov, provides information on these tools and additional resources to explore about caring for yourself, about staying connected, and about reducing your stress. It may seem selfish to prioritize your own needs at a time like this, but in reality, it's not selfish, it's self-care. We need that self-care to deal with our stress and make it possible to care for others around us and stay connected. Supportive relationships keeps up, keep us grounded and physical distancing can make maintaining that connection harder. It also makes it even more important. We can't change our current reality, but we can change how we react to that stress. One of the most effective ways to reduce stress is to reduce your risk of infection. Wash your hands at for at least 20 seconds. Use soap and water. Cover your coughs and sneezes. When you leave your home for essential trips to the grocery store or pharmacy, please remember to stay six feet apart from others. And remember, you are safer at home. Knowing that you are doing all you can to flatten the curve in our state can help relieve some of that worry. But sometimes these strategies aren't enough, and we want you to know that it's okay to ask for help. We know that feelings of isolation, economic hardship, or fear of getting sick that all of these can pile up and make us feel overwhelmed, anxious, or depressed. Telling someone about these feelings isn't a sign of weakness. It can be a necessary tool to survive in this ever-changing situation. So I encourage everyone to visit resilient.wisconsin.gov to find the resources you need to build resilience and bounce back from this tremendous disruption in all of our lives. And now I want to turn back to the numbers that I usually start with. So today, we have 22,377 negative tests in Wisconsin, 1,916 positive tests, and 37 deaths from COVID-19. Of those six new deaths, uh, one is a male in Dane County in his 80s, three are uh, Milwaukee County residents a female in her 70s, a male in his 70s, and a female in her 80s. Uh, and the final two new deaths today uh, are in Ozaki County, a male in his 70s, and a female uh, in her 90s. Uh, today, we have two additional counties reporting cases for the first time, Rusk and Barron. 
our hearts uh, are with the loved ones uh, of the people who have passed, uh, as we have said many times, and I know that you, you certainly share that sentiment. Um, and we wish for those who have been diagnosed with COVID-19 a quick recovery. In all areas of public health, data is an important tool, and the numbers do tell us a story. This week, we added new information to our COVID-19 data webpage. In addition to case counts and case counts by county, we're now providing the number of hospitalizations, cases by date, and the cumulative total cases by date that have been confirmed. Keep watching, there is more to come. But collecting and disseminating data isn't as easy as one, two, three. Our data team reviews each piece of information we collect for accuracy. And although it is a thorough process, when it comes to being transparent and providing you a true picture of that situation, it is important that we get it right. We look forward to bringing you more information as we continue to analyze and collect data on this pandemic and its effects on Wisconsin. As a final note, I want to point out that next week is Public Health Week. So I want to take this opportunity to acknowledge our local and tribal health officers who, like our healthcare providers, have been on the front lines since day one. You are true partners and we could not respond to this pandemic without you. Finally, while the numbers may not seem like you're making a difference, believe me, you are, please continue to remain patient and stay safer at home. With everyone doing their part, we will bounce back from this pandemic. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll now open it up for questions. A reminder to maintain audio quality to keep phones on mute until it's time to ask your question. And for the sake of time. Okay, that's the ongoing press conference. Let me, let me actually, I always hate to go down this route because some people say, oh, you're denying the significance of it. And I'm not. But keep in mind the, the, the acting secretary of the Department of Health a week ago, she came out and she issued, she, we have these studies that say by April 8th, next, next Wednesday, we're, if safer at home doesn't work, we're going to, we're predicting 22,000 cases of COVID-19 and we're predicting 400 to 1400 deaths. So those were those numbers by, by next Wednesday. Well, the number today, um, you, you've got 1916 positive tests, 1916, which is a far cry from 22,000. And you've got 37 deaths, which is a far cry from 400 to 1400. So I, I guess, I mean, on the one hand, it tells me that the, the, the studies, and, and you're seeing this all across the, the country, that the, the studies, they, it, it's, they, they have trouble with the data and making accurate predictions. So clearly, you know, when, when we were told about Safer at Home and stuff, it, the, the numbers that they used, it was thankfully overestimated by a, a factor, and unless this, the bottom falls out in the next couple of days. I don't think that's going to happen. At the same time, there's no question Safer at Home is, is working. So... Um, yeah, 1,916 positive cases in a, in a state of 5.8 million people. That, that's, that's a number to be concerned about. You want to keep your distance. You want to wash your hands. You want to do all that stuff. And 37 deaths, yes, that, that is unfortunate. It generally tends to be older people, people with compromised immune systems. None of us want to get it. None of us want to transfer. But if you, you got to understand, even at, at 1,900, which is a large number, and 37 deaths, that's a lot less than the numbers, a lot, lot less than the numbers that they were potentially throwing around just a week ago. So it is the worst over. No, but it's, it's probably not. The numbers are probably going to go up. That, that's inevitable. At the same time, I, I think we all do deserve a pat on our back for, for doing the, the safer at home stuff and maintaining the social distancing and all that stuff because the numbers, I think, 
Maybe they would have been worse, maybe not as apocalyptic as they were predicted, but they would have been worse if we had not been doing the things that we're doing and will undoubtedly have to continue doing for at least the foreseeable future. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Coming up in the 2 o'clock hour of the program, well, at 2.30, we do... We, we try to lighten it up a little bit, and I understand when you look at what's going on in the stock market and 700,000 jobs disappearing and talking about you know, people getting sick, and you know, in, in some areas of the country, it's been hit a, a lot worse than our area of the country has been hit, but the fear that it's going to come everywhere, I understand these are tough times, but I, I always like to finish the Friday show on a kind of upbeat note and a little more fun note, and we will continue to do Pop Culture Corner, and today's, today's is one of my favorites. It's an oldie but a goodie, but it's also um, it's one that always kind of makes me smile, so we will be doing that. And then when we come back <clears throat> after the news, there's a real interesting piece that appears in the Chicago Tribune. It typically, stuff that goes on with you medically is nobody's nobody's business. I mean, maybe you, you share it with your spouse, you, you share it with your, your family members, but typically, you know, you, you don't go to large groups of people, maybe your, your intimate circle, but you just don't share with the general public the fact that I have this disease or I have that disease. You know, sometimes, you know, people make the decision if they're diagnosed with cancer or whatever that they want to share. Other times, people decide that it's just they, they want to keep it to themselves. And, of course, you've got various laws that prevent employers from sharing that information and things of the like. Is coronavirus different? You know, what I'm going to be talking with you in a few minutes is, and it's a very individual type of thing, but I'm going to be curious, and I want to tell you about this in advance because I want to give you an opportunity to think about it before, you know, we start the segment. If you were, Lord forbid, diagnosed with coronavirus, if you tested positive, would you share that information with the general public? Would you want to keep it to yourself and to your, uh, obviously, your, your, your intimate family members? Or would you share with the general public so your neighbors, for example, would know that, hey, you know, Joe, Joe, Joe's just tested positive for this. Would you share that information publicly? And I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer. I'm just curious as to where you are. And we'll discuss that in just a couple minutes. Um, more of the Wagner Show right after this break and the news. Please stick around. Stay tuned. Jeff Wagner returns after this on WTMJ. At Erickson's Landscape Supply, we'll get you the most. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. So very glad to have you with us. Um, again, we're, let's move away in the 2 o'clock hour from the discussions of the elections, the, the non-starter position of the governor that now at the last minute wants to call the legislature into session and have a, a mail balloting thing that goes on for another month or two. Um, we don't know whether or not a federal appellate court is going to step in and quash part of the order issued yesterday by a federal judge in Madison saying that you essentially can continue to vote for six days after the polls close. Gee, what could possibly go wrong with that? But I want to start off this hour by by posing what what I think is sort of an intriguing question to to you. And I I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer with this, but I'm really genuinely curious as how you would respond. Typically, when it comes to medical situations, 
people are appropriately so reluctant to share them you know with with the general public i mean if you get a diagnosis of this or that or the other thing you know you 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 tell your spouse maybe you tell your kids maybe you tell some of your friends maybe not but but in general i think we have a certain degree of privacy about our, our medical conditions now coronavirus is perhaps a different sort of animal so here is is my question and i want you to be honest if you were diagnosed with coronavirus, and I mean right now the the numbers in the state, um, nineteen hundred and sixteen positive tests, twenty two hundred twenty two thousand negative, but nineteen hundred and sixteen. Now I have no doubt that those those numbers are going to grow. But if you were diagnosed with coronavirus, my question to you is a simple one: Would you share it? Would you make it? Would you make it public? Would you tell your friends? Would you tell your employer? Now, I understand that you know people have different ways of going public, but I, I guess you know if you would typically be inclined to keep a medical condition private, which I, I certainly you know understand. It, it's nobody's it's nobody's business. But with coronavirus, is it that different? So again, no right or wrong answer, but I, I'm genuinely curious. 855-616-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Be honest. If you, you know, went in, you, you know, had some of the, the symptoms, you had the fever, you know, whatever, they gave you the test, you tested positive. Would you make it generally public avail- publicly available that you had tested positive so that your neighbors, for example, would, would know? Would you tell your next-door neighbor, hey, I have tested positive, and, of course, doing that, you know, the whole neighborhood would know those sort, sort of things. Would, would you tell your employer, hey, I've tested positive for this? Would you, would you tell your, your, your workmates? Would you tell the, <clears throat> the guy... I mean, I'm broadcasting from home now, but my my friend John McCure is my pod pal. You know, we we sit next to each other. Our our little workstations are next to each other. If <clears throat> if John had tested positive, you know, would would it be reasonable to expect him or vice versa to say, hey, just so you know, just had this test. I've tested positive for you know COVID nineteen, and I haven't seen John for two weeks. I've been broadcasting at home, but you get the idea. If you're in a situation where you're working next to somebody, you find out that you've now tested positive. Would you <clears throat> go public with that? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And, and if your answer is no, I guess my question is, is that is that being responsible? Would you be upset, for example, if you found out that your neighbor, <clears throat> you live in an apartment building, and your neighbor, who, you know, you don't see a lot, but maybe, you know, in the hallway from time to time, you know, getting in the elevator or whatever, if you found out that your neighbor at some point in time had tested positive for, you know, coronavirus and, and you know, he hadn't told you, would, would you be upset? 855-616-1620. Let's start with Tim in Kewaskum. Tim, you're first. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Hi, Tim. I'm well, thank you. What do you think? Would you tell people? You'd have to. Because we're all in this together, and it's our country. We have to protect mm-hmm. each other. And if you don't tell and you are found to have the virus and have not told other people, I think you should be charged criminally. Hmm. Well, um, you mean because, bec- because why, I guess? Because, I mean, if you, well, let, let's privacy, say that. Privacy stops uh, in a pandemic. Privacy yeah. stops right there. Yeah. That's well, like I, the people that have the disease. And they're carriers, right. and if they know well, about it, 
Right, I guess. Okay, thanks for calling, Tim. I, I, I guess I, I, it seems to me it's two things. It's, it's one question of should you, should you disclose that to, to people and tell people that they may have been exposed. I guess the, the next step is that you threw in there is if you didn't do that, I think that people, you, that people should be charged criminally and fined or put in jail or something like that, which, which is the, the next step. But, but, yes, the idea would be if you – if you, for example, knew that you would, uh, let's just use the example of the, you're, you're an essential employee, you're at work, and you test positive, you share with the person you know, next to you that you've been in relatively close contact with, even within the context of social distancing, hey, I, I tested positive. So that person then at least would have the option to presumably just kind of self-quarantine themselves. That would definitely be useful information. 855-616-1620. Mark in Kenosha. Mark, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, thanks for having me. You know, yes, sir. What I do you agree think? 150% with your previous caller um, because it's already actually uh, a law. Say you have a different disease like uh, HIV and you know you have it. If you transmit that disease knowingly to someone else, you can be criminally charged, and I feel as you should. And I don't think the COVID is any different because if you know you have it, then there there is no more excuses, no more reasons. You must tell the people you've been in contact with and if you haven't done that then you are spreading that disease knowingly to people that are trying to protect themselves against it and i feel that you should be criminally charged and probably could even under current statutes how far would you carry that would you apply that thinking to other sort of communicable diseases like like flu and i i know covid 19 isn't isn't the flu but you know people who test positive for influenza a or influenza b do you think that they have an obligation to disclose to everybody that they've been, you know, exposed to flu, that they have flu? I don't think the flu comes even remotely close, so I wouldn't even classify it in the same type of general okay. uh, generalization. Uh, it's a whole other ball game. When you're talking about the COVID, it's it's a, a whole other whole other part. <laughs> Got it. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more of your calls in just a moment. If you're on the line, hold. please hold on. If you want to join us, 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't know that there's a right answer or a wrong answer. Maybe there is in this case. But, you know, typically we're concerned with medical privacy. If you, if you were to get the coronavirus, would you, should you, Make it public. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Back with more calls in just a moment. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. James in Shorewood. James, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for calling. So my opinion on this, I listen to the opinions of your of your past callers. I think we have to pursue the path that's going to get us the most compliance with an issue of public health like this. You know, I understand the desire to hold people accountable and the, the talk of criminal charges, but the fact is that you're never going to be able to legally compel someone to divulge medical information. And the best way to go about getting people to share that sort of information is to launch some sort of a public awareness campaign that's going to tell them they have nothing to be embarrassed about. You know, I, I really think if you persecute people, you're only going to entrench them. They're going to feel like they're being attacked, and they're not going to help solve this uh, public health crisis. So, you know, like I say, well, I understand the vindictive attitude of some people. You know, it's a very scary time. I think we have to take a step back and do the thing that's going to yield the best result. 
Yeah, I, I, I guess I agree. First of all, there, there's no, or there should be no stigma to, to somebody who gets coronavirus. I mean, it's, it's, and I don't know that you could say there should be any stigma to any sort of illness, but I mean, it, it's, we, we don't say to somebody who's caught the flu, and again, I understand it's not the flu, or you caught a cold or something, we don't say, oh, you've got a cold or you have the flu. Coronavirus is, is the same. I mean, it's, you come into contact with somebody who's, who's been infected. I, I, I think, see, I, I'm with you entirely. I, I'm not, I'm not at, at putting people in prison for doing it, but I certainly think it is the ethical and the moral thing to do to tell people that you've been around to the extent you know, hey, by the way, I've been diagnosed with this. I, I, you know, I didn't know I had it, certainly wasn't doing anything intentional, but this is the information, and now maybe you want to decide to quarantine yourself or whatever. I guess I don't understand why you wouldn't do that. Yeah, I totally agree. And, I, you know, I think I guess there must be some stigma around medical issues generally that's prohibiting people from sharing this information. But like I say, I think the best way to implement a solution on that front is to just have a have a campaign for public awareness. Tell people that it's OK to share this information. You know, whatever the stigma is, you're never going to break it down by throwing people in prison. You're never going to break it down by attacking people. I think the best way to go about this, even if it's you know, you're, you're never going to get full compliance across the board. All you can do is increase public awareness because, you know, even though this is a very panicked time, you can't infringe on people's basic constitutional rights and compel them to divulge information like that. Yeah, I agree. I think so. Again, I, I, I agree. It, it seems to me that there's really kind of no downside to, to doing that. Now, I understand that sometimes it's it's kind of the scope of it. And you say, OK, you've. Uh, Gee, you've uh, you know tested positive for coronavirus, and now um, you know you try to recreate the, the, all the people that you've come into contact with over you know a two-week period of time, and, and that I, I mean I'm not saying that people should have an obligation to try to go back to every store or call every store that they may have been into for a limited period, but certainly I, I don't think it's anything that people should be ashamed of. I don't think it's anything to hide, and if if you know you had contact with certain individuals over that period of time, um, you know, person-to-person contact or whatever, I, you, why wouldn't you do it? And it, from an employment st- standpoint, you know, ap- absolutely. I mean, you, you would do it. I mean, I, I look, I the, the company I work for, I mean, a couple weeks ago, they made the decision, we're going to get everybody we possibly can out of the building. Now I think there's just like a, a handful of people, certainly less than 10, that are in a building where, you know, normally you've got, you know, five, six, seven times as many people. And the idea was we want to separate everybody so – First of all, you, if you're a carrier, you don't get people sick. And secondly, so that, you know, you don't get you sick yourself. And, but, but if that had, if that had happened, if there had been a situation where, okay, I, I'm, I'm now, I'm at home, been home for two weeks, so I haven't seen any of the people that I work with. But if, for example, last week I started developing a fever or something like that, and it turned out to be positive for coronavirus, of course I would have called our, my program director and the general manager and the boss and said, look, I've just been diagnosed with this, so please tell everybody that I was around in the studio, tell these folks so they can decide and you guys can decide. Sorry, it's not like I did it on purpose. I wasn't coming in when I was sick, but if, if that had ended up happening, I think that that would be the responsible thing to do, and I can't imagine imp- an employer holding it against anybody. Kevin in Oconomowoc. Kevin, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. My answer is yes with one exception. And that exception is that if the person were to be mentally unstable, um, someone who could cause, if they found out that I was, or if I, if I decided to be blatantly honest with everybody I come in contact to, 
if that person's unstable, they're going to raise a lot yeah. more pandemonium in everybody else's life. So that person doesn't get told, and there's no harm. Um, I don't plan on hanging out with that person. I stay in my own home. I think yeah. if you truly want to be a servant of what you've been gifted in your life, you share that, that you have it. You want to protect those that you love, those that you know, uh, different levels of, of friendship. It's it, We have to do that if we're going to put a stop to right. it. I mean, at, some, at some point, we have to realize it's not about us. Well, well, exactly. Thanks for calling. I, I agree with you completely. And, and my guess is what would happen is if you would share that information, um, it, it would be a positive, not, not only from the perspective of you know, notifying other people so they could make the decision to self-quarantine. And, 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 I mean, I'm, I'm talking about not just you know, shelter in place. I'm talking about flat-out just kind of quarantine, you know, no interaction at all. That's a decision that they could make. But also, I, I think from a mental health sort of standpoint, I, I think you know, you, you, instead of trying to go through something like that you know, by yourself, what you do is you share it with your friends, you share it with people that care about you, and they'd be in a position where they come in and they say, oh, okay, we, you know, we're, how are you doing? All those types of things. I guess, I mean, I, I think I would share, I would certainly, you know, I think share that information. There's no stigma. There's nothing to be ashamed of. And, and again, I mean, I, I assume these numbers are going to get a lot larger. I mean, right now, 1,916 positive tests, which is, is a... Without minimizing that, in, in a population of 5.8 million, statistically speaking, we haven't had you know a wide range of infections across across the state. That number is going to grow, and obviously, we want to do everything we can to stop it from growing exponentially. But but this idea that if somebody gets diagnosed positive or is diagnosed with this, they should be ashamed of themselves. I I would say absolutely not. And to the extent. You know, you've had contact with people and you know who they are. I'd share that information so those people can then, you know, behave accordingly. I, I'm a big believer in transparency. Let's let's just, whatever the numbers are, let's tell people what the numbers are. Let's not make them worse. Let's not sugarcoat them. Let, let's, if we, you know, let's tell the people the number of folks who've been hospitalized because that's an important thing. Coronavirus is going to be with us for a long time. We just want to make sure that we stop the incidence of this or we limit it so that you don't overwhelm the hospital system. So one of the ways you, you do that is you say, okay, how many people have been hospitalized as a result of this? And then we see what kind of a drain that's putting on the over, overall hospital system. New York right now, huge problem. Wisconsin, as far as like overwhelming the hospitals right now, no. Is it possible it could be at some time in the future if we don't practice safer at home? Sure, but let, let's let's tell people where we are so we can make informed decisions. Let's not panic people, and let's not underestimate it. Let us be transparent. And if that means that somebody you know has been diagnosed with this, tell them. You know, share that information. You didn't do anything wrong. This is Jeff Wagner.